Um, welcome also to, to this session this afternoon. The title of this session is Capital Management Trends in South Africa, a short-term insurance topic. Um, my name is Edward Paul. I'll be chairing the, the session. Speaking to the topic is um, Jakub van der Merwe from Deloitte. He's a director at Deloitte and his colleague Karl Meissner-Roloff also from Deloitte. So thank you very much, Jakub. I assume you'll be going first. Okay, great. Afternoon, everyone, and thank you very much for choosing our talk. Um, it's a privilege to be able to stand up today and share the results of our survey with you. Now, when we started this um, survey, which, as, as you know, is on the topic of capital management, it was actually quite a few months ago, uh, around the beginning of the year, and it was prefaced by a survey that our colleagues did in Europe. They had looked... Um, on this topic across 50 different insurers in Europe and 10 different countries. Um, and at the time, they, they completed their survey at the end of 2015 and released it at early in this year, around March. Um, and at the time, the situation that they found themselves in, in terms of Solvency 2 going live, them being in that sort of transitional stage of moving into a new regime, was very much in line with where we thought we would be today. Now, since uh, that time, so since sort of April when we started planning our survey, things have moved a little bit, as you know. So we, we're still sort of on the cusp of moving into SAM, but it's not quite uh, in a month or two's time as we had originally thought. Nevertheless, the, the context remains uh, very similar, and, and the context remains particularly relevant uh, for insurers looking um, to the topic of capital management. The other reason why we thought the topic is of particular interest is because we found that from the European survey, this notion of capital management and the definition of what capital management really is was, was really to some degree undefined and really depended on who you spoke to. It wasn't something that's specifically addressed or defined in the, in the uh, legislation or in the literature uh, that we have in front of us. So the survey also gives you a sense of what other insurers interpret um, through capital management and what they're doing in that regard. Um, I have to just say that I forgot my glasses in Johannesburg. So if I do look over my shoulder, it's because this screen is smaller than that one. Um, so for our survey, we, we spoke to uh, just around 20 insurers. Um, it's important to note that we are focusing on short-term insurers, so this is a short-term insurance initiative, whereas the survey that um, we are sort of looking at includes some life insurers in Europe. Okay, um, so if you do at some point look at the survey, and you can easily download it from our website. If you go to our stand, we'll, there's a you can get a copy there, or you can download, uh, get the link to download it. But you look at that survey, you'll see that some of the techniques um, are sometimes life-specific, uh, but it's fairly easy to to spot those cases. Um, we um, also managed to capture just around 80, just under 80% of the short-term insurance market by volume as well. Okay. So, diving straight into the results. Um, when, when we started the survey, the first thing we wanted to understand is the amount of resources, time, um, and that sort of thing that insurers were devoting to capital management. Um, and when we start this topic, I think it's important to note that in the European context, there's very much a dedicated capital management function in the business. Okay? And, and that's something that we immediately noticed was very different in the South African context. So uh, we accounted out of the parties we surveyed really few, sort of one or two cases where there was actually a dedicated capital management function or a team in the insurance business. Um, the question is who does capital management? And in, in Europe, that was that was a, a sort of a, a leading um, participant. In South Africa, we found that it really sits with actuarial, um, followed uh, by risk. Now, after discussing it a bit amongst ourselves, I think it became clear that the actuaries, in, in, to a large degree, are sort of a jack of all trades, but basically are the ones owning and driving SAM throughout the insurers. And I think just looking at these results, um, that sort of confirmed that suspicion. 
Uh, I think also it reflects the maturity perhaps of the insurers towards the regulatory framework like SAM and, 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 and actually you know, putting capital management as a business as usual practice into the business. It's, it's not quite something that I think that in time you will see as heavily dominated by actuarial as it currently is. Um, but like I say, um, the, 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 the stakeholders who ranked sort of second highest in terms of that were, was risk. Um, and some of the insurers we spoke to, actually, they, you know, the distinction between risk and actuarial is not that clear. So risk as a function or an or a area in the business has a lot of actuarial presence in it as well. So that would explain why it um, features in that context too. Um, I think it's, it's probably worth noting that the... Um, uh, they, we allowed for the contribution of other forums, so where capital management is driven not perhaps through, say, an actuarial team or a risk team, but also through functions like uh, committees. So ALCO committees, investment committees, risk committees, actuarial committees. So a lot of insurers, a lot of South African short-term insurers seem to be kind of leaving some of that to the committee, but I think there's probably space to use the committee more to play an active role in capital management than what we're currently seeing coming out of the survey. The next question we then tried to wrap our heads around was that of resources and the dedication of, of people to capital management. Um, and again, you have to bear in mind that in, in the European survey, when we, the question was asked, the question was one of, so how many people have you got in your dedicated capital management team? And clearly that this is not a question that you can really ask in the same way. So in the South African context, it's more a question of, okay, how many people throughout the organization, if you had to sort of put them together, the, 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 the sort of fractions of their time that is spent on capital management, to how many full-time equivalent resources would that stack up? Um, and what we found is the, the average sits around just under four, okay? So in a typical short-term insurer, around about four people, four full-time equivalent people um, doing capital management. The range was fairly wide. I'd say the majority of responses are sort of three to six, but we had responses as low as one. Um, in, that, in that case, we, you know, we, we saw some real efficiency coming through. It's not... It's, you, you, say, well, is it a case of then just not doing capital management? But in this context, actually, it's a fairly large group insurer who leverages group resources, structures, and processes really efficiently in terms of capital management and only needs one um, local resource to actually execute in capital management. On the other side of the spectrum, we saw the number go as high as 10. So, so one or two responses of, pe of people who have 10 uh, full-time equivalent resources doing capital management. Now, it certainly reflected the scale and the complexity of the organizations. Um, we, we try and give you a little bit of a sense of that just by kind of breaking the insurers up by size. So the, the, the line at the bottom is assets under management. Just to give a sense of how the average does correlate broadly with the, the size of the insurers. But what we did pick up also is that where the insurers were part of groups, so for example, bank assurance groups, there generally seems to be a more mature culture towards risk management and capital management, specifically focusing on the sources of it and the use of it. And, and that reflected in the, the amount of resources dedicated to capital management. Um, so, yeah, so th I'd say those results were in line with what we, I think, would have expected. The next question was then, okay, well, um, when you look at the modeling underlying capital management, okay, specifically um, the, 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 the modeling component, who is doing the modeling or who's involved in the modeling? And as you would expect, actuarial dominates that space. Okay? Um, when we look at the, uh, the next players, it's generally finance who's come up, and I think it's, it's because finance, you know, from a point of view of modeling, but doing forecasting and projections, finance seems to be closely aligned with what goes in there in terms of assumptions, the use of the numbers for budgets and planning. And, and you know, I think it's safe to say that there's, there's definitely a very close link between finance and sort of traditional actuarial within the insurers. Um, we saw a, a broadly similar picture in the European context, but I think, again, risk had a more pronounced contribution um, to modeling, probably where risk, again, 
had actuarial expertise, you could challenge assumptions, you could provide some sort of oversight, um, you know, linking in things like risk appetite to the modeling and, and, and completing that picture. But in South African context, most certainly actuarial dominated, um, followed by finance and then risk. Okay. Okay, so then we took it to the next level and, and, and drilled one level down, and we actually started asking the guys about capital management strategy. Okay, and, and we asked them to say, well, look backwards, you know, think over the last five years, what is it that uh, has been changing in your business? Kind of where has your focus and your effort gone into? And then cast your mind forward into the next five years and tell us where you think you will be actually devoting your time and your attention and where the changes will come from. And yeah, this was a very interesting one first, especially when you put these two together. So you'll see on the left, uh, the, the red bars reflect sort of current practice um, and the gray bars on the right of them is a reflection of the expectation going forward. I think for us, what stood out is in terms of current practices, um, a lot of time and effort has gone into things like modeling, okay, um, getting models in place, whether it's just getting to grips with the standard formula and the pillar one aspect of the, yeah, of this, of the SAM framework, or whether it's building an internal model for regulatory approval. We know that that number is a lot less than where it was when the process started years ago, but, uh, or even just building an economic model for your own internal purposes that you're not getting approval for. A lot of time and effort has gone into modeling. The other thing that seems to be um, have, have and currently taking up quite a lot of time is just getting the regulatory compliance into action and the framework nailed down. And I think that doesn't surprise us. I think it's, it's a new regulatory environment that we're dealing with. The rules are complex, the requirements are complex, and, and for, for a lot of insurers, you know, getting SAM ready has taken up a great deal of time and effort. Um, I think that follows off things like uh, enhanced written capital management policies, so you know, getting the governance right. And, and actually, we were surprised that you know, when you talk about capital management policies, so how many insurers had nothing to start with? And secondly, when we're tasked to, to draw up capital management policies, kind of didn't really know what, what that meant or what they were supposed to cover in that context. So certainly, there's a lot of maturing and, and learning that's happened over the last few years. Um, in that space. If you then look forward and you ask the guys, okay, well, that's where you've been up to date. How does that picture look going forward? We were, in some cases, a little bit surprised. I think the first thing that jumps out is that in, uh, this, this third section here seems to suggest that insurers feel that they now have the kind of the technical modeling components under control. Okay, it's now in there, it's embedded, and they can really go forward and focus on other things. And those other things are things like capital optimization. So actually now, we can do the calcs, we think we've got it under control, but actually now, how do we get those numbers down? Because while we were coping with getting calculations done, now we actually realize what the outputs of those calculations mean. And for some of us, that's sometimes a bit scary. You know, now the guys are questioning why why does this driver of risk look so high or why does my capital number why does my solvency look so much lower than I thought so I think that that reflects what came out of the survey. The other thing that we find I think was interesting is this this concept of capital source and use you know thinking about where you get your capital from, what it costs you, and how do I actually deploy and use that to to drive the business forward. Is, is such a fundamental question when you talk capital management. And personally, I would, have, I would have hoped that this one would have had a higher response in terms of current practice. But at least, I think we, you know, the, the fact that that line moves a little bit upward hopefully suggests that insurers will in future pay a bit more attention to that as well. Um, I, I do think that 40, 45 is a bit low. I think it intrinsically should be a much bigger part of running a business. But um, it, it seemed to also reflect um, for some of the respondents the fact that capital in some cases wasn't like a seriously scarce commodity or they didn't review that. And when Carl talks a bit later about capital optimization, you'll see that it also drives some of their behavior around how do we optimize capital. Well, it, it's kind of a, ref a reflection of how easily capital is accessible and obtainable for some of them. Um, yeah, and I think then lastly, I think... 
a lot of guys think that the, the regulatory documentation process is going to reduce going forward. I think I, I do agree with that. Once you've done a lot of the work and put it in place, it should come down. I think if you're one of the few who's going for internal model approval, I think unfortunately your days are a bit numbered. You, you probably won't see that nice pretty picture. Um, but, but things like you know, capital policies, I think, yes, the, a lot of the work is done and it's about making it business as usual now. Okay. So I think the other thing I think that we saw throughout the years was stress and scenario testing. Okay, so for me, that was, that was a real um, like evidence of, of, of how boards and board subcommittees were actually starting to um, chew and like, interpret the results of the work that the actuaries did. And there's the question of them asking, okay, well, what, what would happen if this happened? Or, you know, how bad do things really need to go before we have to inject more capital or before we don't make our targets? For me, that was quite a, um, like a, a nice thing to see out of the same framework. It, it definitely drove that kind of behavior over the last few years. Okay. Um, I think the, the idea of minimizing capital and optimizing capital is, is now is, is the one that uh, probably dominates minds most going forward. Um, Carl's going to elaborate on that more, but I think in the discussions that we've had also, it seems to be there's a, there seems to be a curiosity and an interest in terms of what capital optimization could look like. Um, and I think, like I said earlier, whereas the focus in the past was just complying, actually people are now really starting to try and get that solvency number up, capital requirements down, and actually really optimize that situation. Okay. I think I'm going to hand over here to Carl. Um, if there are any questions, you, you're welcome to stop me at this point and ask them. Uh, but uh, otherwise, we'll, we'll leave it till the end of Carl's talk. Okay. But do feel free to stop us at any point in time. So before I show this next slide, um, I showed this slide at a talk last week, uh, one of the reinsurers held on uh, corporate finance and, and um, reinsurance and the usage in SAM. And I was quite happy to see that uh, it did pique a lot of interest. So I don't want to create too much expectation, but it was at a session where I was the last speaker before drinks um, in the evening. So hopefully that's not the case now. But so delving into these capital optimization strategies, what have companies been interested and focused on in the last five years? And what are they looking at over the next five years? Similar to the previous slide, the gray bars um, indicate future state or sort of future interests and focus areas where the red is sort of where the focus has been over the last five years. Um, and interestingly, when comparing this to the, the approach of or the results from the European survey, um, we find that obviously the, the short-term insurance market in South Africa is very much focused to an extent when looking at things like credit portfolio optimization. On, on fairly simple things, effectively taking your standard formula, dissecting it and, and sort of seeing what, what drives it and what are sort of the biggest drivers that you, you have control over. So what we included under credit portfolio optimization is obviously for companies that reinsure a lot, um, looking at your reinsurance panel, diversification, and then the, the, uh, the actual credit ratings of the reinsurers. But then also for companies that don't reinsure that much, the remainder of the balance sheet of the, of the assets. So whether you've got significant concentrations um, in premium debtors, particularly maybe to a single counterparty, and where companies have been looking at ways of enhancing or, or those credit ratings, um, say through factoring or um, other means. So that was definitely one of the, the largest focus areas. And, and um, interestingly enough, it, it still remains a, a, an area of focus for companies. We were speculating on whether that might be to an extent because of the, the changing nature of uh, the SAM standard formula and sort of where that calculation is being performed, the calibration of the credit risk um, component and sort of where that moves um, over time as, as the FSB or as, as the task groups make changes to, um, to the results. Second to that uh, in terms of focus is the asset, um, asset and sector selection as well as um, return optimization. So about a year ago at, at a short-term convention, we, we spoke about this in a lot more detail. But it, it includes things like um, investigating particularly an, an efficient frontier of the types of assets that you can invest in. Now, I think from the life insurance perspective, that's obviously quite a common thing or normal thing that they do because of the nature of their balance sheets and, and the amount of, of assets that they have 
but in terms of what was previously the case, this is obviously something fairly new that not a lot of insurers um, had looked at in terms of almost a risk-adjusted return or a return on capital. Um, but as highlighted at this stage, I'm not sure if it's quite still the case, but uh, what we found at that point was that due to the way the credit risk calculation is calibrated, there were some interesting opportunities existing on that efficient frontier because of um, the return that you could potentially obtain from some of the banks in terms of the instruments that they had available. It wasn't necessarily always the case that a worse credit rating meant that you were rewarded with a higher rate of return. But these are the kinds of investigations that um, are now enabled effectively through SAM or that you necessarily need to start looking at or need to focus on, which was not necessarily something that was very important um, previously. An interesting one that popped out in terms of, uh, well, the, the use of an internal model in that sense was that I mean, we didn't expect, and you certainly from the market don't see a lot of those models going for regulatory approval, but I think a lot of companies also dabbled or looked at the potential usage of a, an internal model, even if just for internal um, reporting purposes or understanding sort of where the risk is coming from in their business, especially if you had a view uh, that the capital calculation for your business is the result is very different to what the regulatory standard formula came up with. But as you can see also, it remains a fairly high focus area. And I think often once uh, insurers start getting more comfortable with the calculation of a capital requirement that's more risk sensitive and you refine that calculation over time, you also find the need to really want to understand where are the numbers coming from and wanting to potentially do some allocation of the capital, um, so requiring more advanced methods. So I think that's, that's probably what uh, the use of internal model um, that result speaks to quite a bit. A surprising one was also then the introduction of less capital intensive products. So when you hear that initially the response is often, well, the insurance market determines the product, the insurer will, will manage the capital required. But in this context, I think specifically there are a number of insurers that are looking at potentially just tweaking policy wording or the way in which the product is written or what it covers um, for potentially exposures that are not necessarily used by the customer to, uh, to the, by the policyholder to a large extent, but are attracting very large capital charges or are just being generally inefficient. Another example of this would also be if you were to compare a lot of um, so our short-term or short-dated motor and, and um, property policies in South Africa uh, compared to a, a European context, where most of those policies are written on an annual or sort of a one-year contract basis, um, whereas in South Africa the contract boundaries are often much shorter. And when you then end up comparing your capital requirement that you calculate on those policies, which is defined as a one-year, uh, one in 200-year, one-year horizon, one in 200-year stress, the own funds that you hold from the liabilities, which if you're writing profitable business is normally negative, is normally only calculated over the contract boundary, which for many products is, is less than a year. So I think a, a, lot of, a lot of the insurers we spoke to were saying that that's potentially something that, that they would also be looking into. And that just speaks to, again, touching on, on what Jaco mentioned about when you talk about what the definition is of capital management, um, it's not necessarily only the management. So when you look at your solvency ratio of, say, the, the capital number, um, minimizing that capital, num uh, that capital number or optimizing your, your own funds uh, sort of below the line. But interestingly enough, um, not so relevant for South Africa, but um, a key feature in, in Europe because they've been running on this um, regime now for a while is also the management of the volatility of your solvency ratio, just in terms of expectation management with your stakeholders. And so once, um, and that was what we were seeing from, from Europe, once the um, external stakeholders get more frequent reporting on all the new SAM or, or Solvency 2 metrics, you're now more tracked against how those things change over time. And it's fine if it's elements of your business that you have control over it, but it's often, I think, very problematic and certainly more for the life insurers when you are exposed to, say, interest rate risk, um, yield curves, um, 
say, in the European market that, are, that have very low interest rates. When those yield curves move, there are potentially significant movements um, on, your, on your balance sheet in terms of your own funds if you have uh, elements of your, your liabilities that haven't been, been hedged. So that's something I will also touch on a bit um, later. Um, then, so the typical uh, data collection and gathering, that was interestingly not something that we really saw from the European market. I'm not sure if they were lying or were not aware, but it's definitely a big feature, I think, in our market, especially in the intermediated space um, or, or where underwriters are involved in terms of getting just to the right the true capital number or the true um, uh, risk metric for that exposure is often very difficult because you don't have the full set of uh, information. So um, as you can see, there, the, the amount of focus and um, effort is still seen as high or, or um, is, is definitely a key area for uh, nearly half the insurers going forward. I think reinsurance optimization is something that most um, insurers are fairly comfortable with, so that's definitely something that um, will continue. Um, intergroup introduction of intergroup reinsurers. This was also sort of a very niche um, uh, group of insurers that looked at that, some potential diversification benefits that they could get from that, but not um, a, a major theme. Um, group structure changes or branches. I think this also again spoke more to almost a bit of uh, consideration of regulatory arbitrage, looking at uh, placing some of your subsidiaries or parts of the group within jurisdictions with different regulatory requirements, um, but obviously also significantly now impacted by the, the reinsurance regulatory review. And then the, the, the typical other ones, so the, the adjustment of your risk exposure through um, acquisition or disposal or internal transfers um, featuring sort of at the lower end of interest. Just on that, I actually expected that to be slightly higher because you always see when you read the reports from, from uh, Europe, you know, increased regulation and complexity, you know, it's almost de facto leads to uh, consolidation. Um, and for a time, I think in our offices at least, we, we did experience it with uh, sort of three to four due diligences happening in, in parallel and uh, sort of significant Chinese walls activity um, going on at a stage. But that, I must say, must, has, seems to also have, have uh, died down um, to an extent. So when making these capital management decisions and embarking and selecting these strategies, comparing what's good and what's not good, what is a good choice to make, um, often boils down to some of the metrics um, that are used by companies. And so we were interested in understanding which metrics uh, companies consider. So as mentioned, I think the cover ratio gives sort of a view from both the calculation of capital, so the quantification of this um, sort of one in 200 year event, uh, versus the, the own funds, which, which is the amount available in that rather uh, remote one in 200 year, year event. But interestingly, when, when you're trying to make decisions around, so say, specific reinsurance purchases or, or maybe just adding a new product to the portfolio, understanding the diversification benefit, it's, it's often quite difficult to look at that only from a solvency ratio or cover ratio point of view. The result kind of gets lost within, within the, the bigger numbers. Um, so operating income earnings is obviously then a big driver and I think has always been a, a big driver and just to note so most companies here obviously use multiples um, of these metrics so either two or three of the metrics um, listed but so earnings I think for short-term insurers has always been um, a, a key focus in terms of uh, writing profitable uh, business or uh, making some margin a return on equity that that was interesting to us I mean that's I think something that is obviously of value to to shareholders but I think more, more relevant is the return on capital these days. If you were to say that you, you fully embraced um, the whole new regulatory regime and that you have an embedded ERM framework where you have comfort in the numbers that you're generating, I suppose using return on capital is really a, a hallmark or a signature of that to say that we trust in the number that comes out and we are happy to make decisions on those, um, on those stats. So capital planning often involves a process, a four-letter, which, uh, which is a four-letter word, which I'm hoping is not a, a swear word for, for some of the people in this room, but the also is sort of the quintessential meeting of um, business planning and your, your ERM world, where you are effectively trying to reflect your view 
of what you say the risks are that your business is exposed to in terms of where the business is going. And so we were interested here to see uh, the types of decisions that companies were making in terms of the, the, the time horizon. So the FSB says you can choose between three, well, you should have a, um, so not the FSB, the, the FSI, the, the financial um, standards for insurers, um, say that you need to have a horizon of between three and five years. And so when we looked at our, our results, roughly 50% of the insurers were using a three-year horizon and uh, another 50% was using about a 50 um, uh, a five-year horizon with the few guys in between often having sort of a, a strange or a halfway through the year type of also process where we'd, they would do a roll forward for um, one year before they do their three-year projection. So um, it seems obviously whatever was done was done to be more practical in terms of their current business planning um, process. In terms of the decisions, obviously dividend is quite an easy one to, to build in, although we were surprised to see that not everybody builds uh, dividends into their calculation, but it is, I think, often more related to, again, more niche companies that either are not interested in paying dividends over a particular period or um, are part of a, a larger group structure which has uh, potentially different instructions for the subsidiary. Reinsurance is, again, a fairly easy one to build in. Product strategy, critical if you are planning on launching or taking away um, products. M&A and other corporate uh, decision structures we also saw, so um, not, not too much of a train smash. But then debt, equity financing, and contingent capital planning. So again, as I mentioned before, so what you are trying to do then from a capital optimization point of view, you, on the one hand, you're trying to get the capital component right. So this is a stress amount that you need in a one in 200 year scenario but your assets available are not, it's not necessary for you to have all that cash available for your one in 200 year event. There are potentially uh, ways of funding that one in 200 year scenario, which doesn't necessarily mean you need to have the cash on the balance sheet today. So that is really what the um, contingent capital planning and, and um, debt equity financing is, is, is about. Looking at other ways of tier two, tier three capital, um, and I think for some companies it is very crucial to include those uh, types of um, elements to their, their capital forecasts or their plans. So what are the shortfalls? We asked companies to, to give us in some insight and obviously I'm, I'm sure we didn't get the full, full picture, um, but um, overwhelmingly we were surprised to see that the uh, number one area of um, shortcoming from a capital modeling and a capital modeling process, capital management point of view, is communication with stakeholders, which was the exact same issue that Europe had. Um, so, I mean, I think there are many reasons for this, obviously. Um, in South Africa, you speak to most uh, insurance board members or executives, the, the moving goalposts, the changes, the um, recalibrations, even when we know that so, um, Sam will have sort of a second round of... Um, calibrations and adjusted done to the uh, standard formula um, over the next few years. So there's, I think, a huge amount of uncertainty and volatility that still surrounds um, capital management or just the number at least coming out, um, which creates a problem because sometimes your business doesn't change from one period to the next, but the capital number, number changes and that, that destroys confidence um, in the number. Then um, data sources, unsurprisingly, um, also feature there. I think that is, uh, well, I mean, I'm sure there are lots of talks at this conference about um, the, the new amazing things that you can do and how, how um, data is really almost an asset, or it is really an asset for the, the company of the future. So I think if, if anyone had any thoughts or wonderings about where they should really be investing their effort, um, I would certainly not say you should be looking at your data sources only from a, to get your capital management uh, correct. I mean, this is really something that's sort of core and fundamental to the insurance companies of the future. Um, stochastic modeling expertise, I think I mean, we're all aware of the skills, problems and issues that we face in this industry. But again, I think this also points more to the case where companies are starting or interested in, in um, dabbling and understanding more. So this capital number that they have, how can we meaningfully actually attribute it to specific products or specific elements of the balance sheet? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll speak to it now, but I think the uh, most short-term insurers are very comfortable with managing of insurance risk and understanding of the origins of insurance risk. But the SAM formula 
introduces this element of market risk and managing of market risk, which is fairly new um, for, for a lot of insurers and understanding, you know, are you really, if you, if you say in your risk appetite you have an appetite, it might not be a lot, but you have an appetite for market risk, how much of that appetite are you using or are you just putting everything in cash um, to sort of avoid the risk and is that in line with your, your risk appetite? Um, model governance is, I think, probably understated on this survey. Um, given the fact that with Quiz 3, the short-term industry got handed a spreadsheet to do a lot of the calculations which had been used then for a while, adjusted, and now companies are expected to do these things themselves. I think it also reflects in one of the earlier slides that Jackie showed around the actuarial team owning the majority of the calculation is that the reality is a lot of it is, is sitting in Excel. And the control over which you, the control that you have over Excel, not never mind only assumptions and, and uh, sort of values that you can reconcile um, from from the balance sheet. I mean, checking whether that or knowing whether there have been any mistakes, finger trouble, or unintended consequences from changes made to the actual calculations. That I think is probably a challenge for, uh, for a lot of insurers, given that every now and then there's an update or two and small changes coming through from the comprehensive parallel run with, with some more in store over the next two years. So I think model governance there is, even from a regulatory standard formula um, point of view, uh, potentially also a, a massive shortcoming and an area where, where companies should really be looking at um, uh, streamlining automation of those processes because in reality a lot of these calculations are not that complex they can be automated to a large extent and don't necessarily need to be done by um, an actuarial team so to summarize if we can leave you with just these few points I know I mean capital management is riveting a topic as it is um, if, if we can just sort of uh, leave with you these these points with you for for the um, presentation today is that capital management um, and the, the governance surrounding capital management is still a work in progress, which is to an extent something that we would have expected given where, where Sam is in terms of implementation, although originally the date was the first of next year. But this was also very much a finding at the, at the cusp of Solvency II being implemented. So um, from our European colleagues' survey, basically at the point before Solvency II went live, nobody was... Well, I wouldn't say nobody, but the vast majority of people weren't fully ready to do it. It was a work in progress. The correct quantification of capital and capital optimization. So getting the models right, getting the data right is obviously a first step, and then looking at ways to, to change the nuts and bolts is a, still a major focus over the next five years for uh, the majority of, of companies. As mentioned earlier, risk return dynamics on, on, uh, short, on, on the insurance risk component I think is well understood and, and general insurers are more comfortable with those, but the, from a market risk um, context, not necessarily that familiar with it. I think if you, uh, for some of the insurers that have either life companies or banks within the group are often more equipped or, or more comfortable in dealing with these things. But just an example was from our European colleagues that uh, their view was almost to have an, I mean, it, there's no, no problem with a general insurer having an equity exposure, but to their minds, having an, an uncovered equity exposure almost made no sense because the cost of buying a put option that's very far out of the money versus the benefit that you get from a, from a, a capital saving point of view, a CR saving point of view, even including the, the secondary credit risk, um, was just almost in all cases very much worth it. So I think when you speak to most general insurers, they say, I'm not running a hedge fund. I'm not going to do uh, things like that. But I think going forward, that's potentially something that uh, general insurers can also look at to enhance returns um, on their existing capital base. Fine-tuning product design. That was something that did uh, come up with a, a lot of um, uh, the server respondents. But as I said, not necessarily new products, but just looking at existing components and um, of, of the, the products and what they cause in, in terms of capital required. I mentioned also the need for emphasis on governance and on uh, the, the processes around assumption setting as well as the, the calculations themselves. And then lastly, focusing on improving transparency. Um, and this speaks a lot to getting that communication with stakeholders, um, improving that communication with stakeholders. I think often if you can at least show 
often it's just a qu question of being able to show it graphically um, to a board member, to someone to break down really what is the reason for the change and potentially also informing that there are changes coming from the, the second set or the second tranche or next level of uh, SAM adjustments even after SAM has gone live. So that's it from us. If you have any questions, you're obviously welcome. I think we have, uh, have some time now for, for questions. Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks, Yaku. Thanks, Carl. Um, so, yes, as Carl said, I think they've done well. They promised to be spot on about 40 to 45 minutes. You've done that, so thanks very much. We do have some, a good time for a few questions. Um, if, if you guys don't mind, I want to sort of implement the chair's prerogative and uh, just ask a question of my own, which um, those of my colleagues in the audience will groan when they hear me ask the question. But it's, a, it's around model, model governance, um, which you have highlighted uh, quite a lot. And um, I've, in my experience, and I've been guilty of it, seen uh, poor model governance undermine the, the quality of the capital modeling coming out of that. So uh, I was surprised that so few, you've emphasized it, but so few actually in the survey highlighted this as a major driver for theirs to correct in the next five years. Um, so. Is that something that is going to risk all of the good work that's gone into all of the model development over the last few years? And is the actuarial profession up to the challenge of highlighting the model risk framework and governance that should accompany models like this? Mm. If you have comments on that, I'd appreciate that. Okay. Okay, well, I'll, thanks, Edward. I'll. I'll share my two cents worth and then I'll, Carl will probably have some additional inputs. But I think, so we too have seen really good modeling work potentially undermined by bad governance or, you know, by sort of failures in terms of model governance and controls. Um, and I guess if, if I think about what, how that sat with us as a sort of independently reviewing team who communicates up to um, Exco and boards of committees, I think what the effect of that was that firstly we started questioning everything else about the modeling um, and it also puts a bit of a dent in the confidence of uh, the sort of secondary stakeholders. So I think that it is a real risk in the sense that you could undo a lot of that, you know, you saw stakeholder communication is a big issue. So getting everyone on board, aligned, up to speed with what you're doing and then undoing that with slip-ups as, if I could put it that way, that, that are results of poor model governance definitely is a risk. I think what we saw is, it, I mean, naturally you can have a real big quantitative impact and that, that is a risk on its own, but for me it's almost more the softer issues that are the biggest risk. It's the undermining of the confidence and people not buying into the process and undoing that change. So I think my personal perspective is that it, it is something. I think the actual society probably has, hasn't been high on our agenda just because there's so much on our agenda. But if I just think about what uh, the short-term insurance um, committee is doing is, for example, coming up with guidance notes. And one thing that is on the to-do list is guidance notes for capital modeling and specifically guidance around internal model, say, validation and so on. And I think that's probably an area where um, some guidance or education would be really handy. A state of maturity probably just means that it's not been high on our list. I don't know if it's, I mean... Thank you. Um, sorry, so I've got the chair's question out of the way. Um, so I'd like to open it up to the floor. Um, if you can take questions. Um, question over there. Mics are coming. Uh, if you can indicate by your hands any other questions so we can get the mics going. Uh, thank you. Shalon Bhagwan from Ashburton Investments. Um, so thank you for a good presentation and for highlighting some of the issues. I was particularly intrigued with the slide which talked about where people intend to focus going forward. So they talked about focusing, I guess, on the market risk SCR, in particular credit portfolio optimization. You talked about interest rate risk management. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess in our experience, and this is more from an asset management perspective in sort of working um, with, with investors, what we find is that there's a gap between um, where this work ends off, which is the actuarial consulting work, and the investment work needs to kick in. 
and bridging that gap between the advice that the actuarial consultant gives and the actuarial consultant goes along and says, well, if you look at the SAM, it's changed, it's market risk SCR, you need to optimize your credit portfolio, and then what? You know, so it doesn't take that next step. So if you sit, if you're Liberty or Sunlum and you've got Lipfin and SCM respectively, you can go to your credit, get all the PDs, LGDs, and you optimize your credit portfolio, you know, A for away. If you're a short-term insurer, bigger problem. Who do you go to and where do you go and how do you solve that problem? So I think this is great theory, but the practice of actually implement, of implementing requires possibly some sort of bridge to be um, linked between the actuarial world and the investment world, first point. And then just as the second point, I mean, in the short-term insurance sector, what you have is um, large cash balances. Those cash balances are typically invested in um, short-term funds, money market funds and others that are heavily invested in bank paper. That picks up a concentration risk charge under SAM, and currently there's nothing that you can do about it, potentially because the treasury bills market is, if you'd like, structurally not set up to construct a, a pure T-bills type portfolio with government risk only. So again, I think where the shortfall comes in and where the, either the actuarial world needs to move closer to the investment world or vice versa is in actually changing some of the structural shortcomings of the T-bills market. So for example, from an investment perspective, we are currently engaged through a CISA with uh, Treasury to try and get the T-bills market to A, not to, 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 to look at potentially the structure of the auctions, which currently take place on a Friday and then which settle T plus three, which creates cash drag. And so if we can fix some of those structural inefficiencies in the T-bill market, you can potentially create the opportunity to structure a more a SAM-friendly short-term cash solution for your short-term insurance companies. Um, but it's, again, I think there's a link here between the actuarial world and the investment world, which has been missed in terms of actually implementing some of these um, optimization, portfolio optimization solutions that I think the companies want to focus on, but currently don't know how to implement. Thank you. If there are any comments on that, I'd, I'd appreciate your thoughts on it. So, I mean, I think obviously our presentation, we highlighted the fact that I, there's definitely in some insurers, there hasn't been the need to do that in the past. Um, and so moving on to Sam, there is potentially that that gap, and I agree that there is uh, probably a gap moving over into the, the investment management space. Um, but yeah, whether the, the solution is, is uh, changing the sort of the bond market or the, the, the availability and access to funds um, from a regulatory implementation, I think um, that's probably something that, that uh, can be deb debated. But um, yeah, I, I'm not sure if there were any other questions, but I think you, you kind of hit on a lot of the key, key items. If, if I could add, I think you sort of made two distinct points. The second one sort of more of a statement, which I think I fully, fully agree with and buy into. Um, maybe your first point was there was sort of a question in that in terms of how can the actuaries, <clears throat> or how can we take it a step further and get the actuaries closer to the investment world, sort of take the theory and kind of you know take it a level further. And I think I, I think I, I know what you mean, and I've seen it in clients myself. Um, in the cases where it has been more successful, uh, the involvement of the actuary, you know, you'll typically find, find that we focus on the standard formula and we focus on what comes out of that and a lot of the advice and the work done is based on that. But there's naturally a, a gap between implementation and reality in running your business on a day-to-day -day basis and basically trying to get the most out of a formula. Um, and in the cases where things have worked out the best and where the most value has been obtained was where you know there was a good and a sort of seamless interaction. So we as the actual team take part in the finance and investment committees um, the outputs of what we produce are discussed there, but then there's, it's not just us contributing to that forum. You know, we've got capital markets experts there, we've got the finance and investment experts there, they get the asset managers involved, and they actually kind of close that gap a little bit. So, and my own first-hand experience is that that definitely took that particular insurer a step forward compared to everyone else where we maybe we hand off at some point and then we, we don't really know what, what happens with the investments in reality. So I think your point is definitely one that I think a lot of insurers need to take heart. It's about getting the right stakeholders to talk and involve them in the correct forum so that it moves from theory to practice. 
So, but your points are definitely, I think, very valuable. Check. We do have a, a couple more minutes left. If there are additional questions. Carl Yaku, it's Ron Richmond from AIG. I wanted just to ask on, on one of your previous slides where you were showing the comparison of the prior couple of years versus the future expectations. Was the interpretation of that that um, a lot of these action uh, uh, that a lot of companies are lo no longer interested in taking a lot of these actions? In general, I think um, most of the actions from a forward-looking point of view had actually um, the, the, the percentage of respondents had dropped. Compared to 20, uh, compared to the prior couple of years, does that mean there's less interest in the in the industry and actually, or less engagement of the industry with these sorts of ideas? So I would say, I mean, over the last five years, we've come out of a, a period of, of a lot of SAM work, heavy SAM, amounts of time being invested in SAM. So I, from the at least the interviews that, that uh, I did, I mean, the, the word um, SAM fatigue is not necessarily something that uh, is. It comes out directly from that, but you can definitely see, I think um, a lot of insurers are keen to get back to focusing on sort of the key um, elements that make up writing proper good insurance business. Obviously, keeping and um, keep on um, continuing in the good work that they've done from an ERM perspective, because that has been very valuable for the industry, but um, at the same time, returning also sort of to a more business as usual state where there isn't so much flux from a SAM point of view. I do also think a huge amount of investment um, has gone into um, the development of infrastructure. Um, stress testing, I think, is one of those ones where five, six, seven years ago, there were very few companies doing that, whereas now it's almost a, a requirement. So I think it was a huge, very topical in the last five years. In terms of developing new infrastructure for in stress testing, it's unlikely that there would be a lot of insurers left that, that would still need to do that, to, to a large extent at least. So I wouldn't necessarily say it's lack of interest. It's probably just more. Um, um, sorry, there's a question over there. Can we just get the mic? It's Mark Turley from Old Mutual. Um, can you comment on the ability to do um, projections and um, sort of capital projections over three to five years? It didn't, it didn't come across as, the, as an issue and, and the sort of maturity of being able to do projections of SCR and own funds. So if, so if I understood you correctly, you were asking just around what our assessment at least is of how mature insurers are um, around um, the projections. Um, so we obviously for this survey didn't look at each of the insurers individually from, from that perspective into that level of detail. But I must say when we do see a large portion of the market's um, projections from either ORSA or through some of our other um, engagements. And I think generally the, the the biggest focus is really on the one-year one year horizon um, within some significant simplifications for, for years going on. So uh, we have seen some highly sophisticated three-year forecasts versus some really, really unsophisticated five-year forecasts. I think it, what, what it boils down to is really what is the underlying complexity of the business and the extent to which you um, need to create uh, quite elaborate recursive or rebalancing um, models um, and whether, whether that will add significant value to uh, the, the type of business that you have. Is that, does that answer your question? Uh, yes, thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, if there aren't any further questions, just checking, then I think uh, we've probably just run out of time now and it just leads us to thank Yaku and Cole for their contribution today. Thanks. Thank you.